Dave, we are a podcast about music for musicians and for people that really understand the power and value that music can bring into people's lives. The last few months, however, have been particularly challenging for musicians and people that work in and around music. And so today we're very proud to show our support for a fantastic charity doing some brilliant work in this area here in the UK. That's all right, John. Um, Help Musicians are a, an amazing charity who offer a wide range of services and support for those based in the UK. This includes work with creative programmes, support with health and wellbeing, to name but a few. So for those who love music, want to support the industry and help see it grow, please visit www.helpmusicians.org.uk. Love music, help musicians. Now let's get on with the show. Hello, welcome to the Punk Rock Academy podcast. I'm John. And I'm Dave. John, how are you doing today, mate? Dave, I'm very good. Uh, we have just had a lovely chat with uh, a very good friend of mine who I kind of forget, he's a bit of a punk rock, punk rock superstar. I don't think he'd like me to call him that. I don't think I like calling him that. But let's just call it what it is. He's a punk rock superstar. I'll say that. Dennis from 88 Fingers, Louis. Punk rock superstar, mate. That's pretty much, that's pretty high up there. Pretty high up on the echelons of uh, punk rock superstardom. I agree. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so um, really good chat today. Um, what I loved about it was some, he had some, a lot of funny stories, especially one that stood out for me was when he first got into punk and he wore a Circle Jerks shirt and and he, he didn't actually know what a circle jerk was until his father made him aware of, of, of the meaning I love, of the I love the fact his dad like yeah sort of in a moment of you know paternal wisdom and education decided to see his son down <laughs> you know this is t- teach about the birds and the bees via punk rock uh, hilarious <laughs> but you know that led me on to thinking like and I haven't got one sadly but what's been a fashion faux part of yours John a fashion faux pas. I'll make millions. Um, I mean, fashion fashion faux pas. I mean, every haircut I had from about sort of 2003 to about 2009. Um, the the jacket I wore for the first ever and last ever heroic doses gigs, which uh, there's a picture pictures somewhere. Was that a black and white one? That's the one. Um, yeah, unforgettable, mate. In, t- <laughs> in terms of like. In terms of like stuff that like Dennis kind of got me in trouble, um, I did have to take off a Bad Religion t-shirt from school one day. I got in trouble for that. Um, it was a day where you could wear your own clothes uh, and I was trying to be controversial and I was, but I didn't have the character to back it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also remember like just that story really reminded me of when I think I'd bought it was no effects, uh, the ribbed album, uh, and my parents kind of found it. And I don't think they weren't upset or anything, but they they did make a thing of it. Like, um, like they embarrassed me. Um, How old are you I, then? I don't know, maybe like 14 or something. I, I don't even know if I knew what it was, but um, I either had to play it cool or sort of feign ignorance. But um, that was 
yeah, that was quite fun, but nothing, nothing quite as awkward as I think Dennis must have gone through. You must have something, Dave. Some you must have some embarrassing story somewhere, somewhere uh, locked away. Honestly, I was really boring. I got into like punk rock late. Now, like the most awkward sort of attire would be like when I rocked up to like these sweaty, dingy club nights, wearing all white, knowing that I was going to get fucking caked in mud or dirt or sweat or whatever but other than that my life was pretty I was pretty sensible with my clothing style you always had style Dave you always had style people could say what they want about you but you can never take away your style um right let's listen to the, the punk rock superstar himself Dennis how's it going guys yeah very good how are you I'm good man good just getting over uh just getting over this goddamn COVID oh shit did you get I it? got hit with it over the holiday if you can believe it how were you feeling was it really heavy no, because I got I got vaxxed and boosted. So um, it was it was like the flu, but like just a little more annoying. Like uh, normally, normally my my flu symptoms are, you know, the, the kind of the typical ones. But this one I had uh, I had a wheezing cough that didn't go away, almost like I was asthmatic, but I haven't had asthma. Uh, That'd be really, really fun for the podcast. Then we could have loads of intermittent <laughs> wheezing coughs. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I I. Knock, knock on wood, you won't hear too much coughing. If this, if we did this a week ago, uh, it'd be another story. <laughs> we, I think, Dave, you, you had it too, didn't you? I did, yeah. I got, I got it. I done the test day before Christmas Eve. I was meant to go visit the mother-in-law and um, tested sure. positive. So, unfortunately, that was postponed for a little did bit. Did you test but... positive, Dave, the day before you had to go see your mother-in-law? Did you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? Believe it or not, my mother-in-law is pretty cool. She bought me a Kill Your Idols hoodie, so... Did she? Oh, good. She did, indeed, yeah. John, you'll love this. I got COVID from Ken from the Bull Weevils. We were at a benefit at Liars Club, middle of December. I hadn't seen Ken uh, in person in two, almost three years. So, you know, an old an old friend like Ken, I'm not just going to high-five the guy. I haven't seen you in forever. So I gave him a hug, and everything was fine. Uh, the next day, he texts me. He's like, buddy, it was so good to see you. Just a quick heads up. I tested positive. <laughs> And I go, you know what, man? Thanks for letting me know, but I feel fine. Like I've never, you know, I didn't have COVID before. Uh, so, so that Monday, I'm like, I feel fine, man. But thanks for letting me know. And then I woke up Tuesday with that scratchy throat, oh, and man. I'm like, son of a bitch. You know what, though? The nice thing is, Dennis, it's lovely to hear the Chicago punk scene is still supporting each other. You know, still, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Still, still sharing, sharing and caring. To a to an unhealthy degree, as it turns yeah, out. Yeah, to maybe an unhealthy degree. Oh, I hope he's doing all right as well. Yeah, yeah, he's good. I've somehow managed to avoid it. This is a weird kind of kind of weird coincidence because the last time I saw you, Dennis, which yeah. was the London show when eighty eight were over for that, like you guys were over for like a weekend or something. It was something we just did. Weird. We just did Manchester Punk Festival and then that show at Newcross. Newcross, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. But the last time I saw you was also the last time I saw Dave because then. Uh, Dave and I are both parents. I know you are. Yeah. As well. You've got an older yeah. one than we do. Um, so life uh, and then COVID got in the way. Um, yeah. So the three of us are the you, you're the last people I, I saw before the pandemic. <laughs> so oh, we funny. have vowed never to see each other again in person. <laughs> that that new cross show. I mean, let's just jump straight into that because um, yeah. I don't know that for me. I, I guess you'll you'll be able to explain this better because the new album was out for a little bit by the time you guys yeah. came over but that show was like a real eye-opener for me because I haven't been I, I was going to less and less shows and I was probably mm -hmm. going to there were less and less of the sort of bands that were around at that kind of time doing stuff and suddenly it was like stepping back in time there were just 
kids in baggy shirts and everyone was going crazy and loving the old stuff and it was just so heartening but um and also heartening just to see that there's still a love for that kind of that 90s type of music which you know you could be mistaken for thinking that it's kind of had its day but um but under the I mean the new album I think is is phenomenal and not trying to do anything new it's just I say new it's been out what for three or four years but like it's such a great 90s punk record so Mm. like what what like what do you think the legacy of 90s punk rock is I mean that's a massive question to start with but is it is it is it now a retro thing or are people do you think in your in your experience are people still really into that I kind of think it's retro you know Chicago in the 90s up through the early 2000s, certainly. Uh, but basically, if you didn't sound like the Bowles, you sound like 88 Fingers. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's maybe highfalutin as that sounds. That was kind of where, that's kind of how weird things were when we kind of jumped, you know, when Bowles and then a couple of years later, 88 kind of jumped off the train. It was almost exclusively pop punk or, you know, melodic hardcore. You know, speaking speaking for 88, over, over the, you know, the better part of those, you know, 10 or whatever years, um, that we were away before we uh, started playing out again, um, people kind of looked at it as like, oh, you know, that shit was so cool and my dad was going to shows. <laughs> and then we would get, I, 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 it, it's, it's, crazy to, it's crazy to think about, but like people my kid's age, you know, my kid's pushing, you know, he's in his mid-20s now uh, and we're talking five or six years ago now. So we're talking, you know, kids in their mid-teens are saying, oh, you know, my dad finally, you know, let me break into his CD collection and I'm getting all this cool shit. And um, I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. I think nostalgia has kind of served us, served us well because there was that, there was that gap of, of, of that kind of music. I mean, bands like Counterpunch um, were, were definitely keeping the, keeping the torch alive, but uh, you know, as far as Chicago's uh, area bands go, but for the most part, I mean, the, certainly the shows that I was going to see uh, over the years, they weren't really, there wasn't really a lot of a lot of fast punk being played out on a, on a regular basis. So I think, yeah, I think kind of over the over that you know ten or so years that we were kind of away from everything, there was there was a resurgence primarily based in nostalgia, and then um, thankfully there's there's a lot of bands that are that are still keeping it up. Do you feel that you know obviously you first formed nearly thirty years ago? Do you <laughs> next do year you, will be thirty years? <laughs> yeah, well, wow, wow. <laughs> Could you have seen yourself like, still providing an influence on modern day punk bands and like, how, how your styles you know, just transcended you know, different eras and obviously still stay relevant? Oh, God, no. I, I'm 30, 30 years ago when we when we started, you know, 29 years ago, if you want to get technical, when we first started <laughs> playing, um, we were cool just playing our friends' basements. Our 88 Fingers first show wasn't even, we weren't even called 88 Fingers. We, we had, the first band name we had uh, we were called Platypus Rex, and I and I I I, uh, I take full credit for that shitty name. Uh, Thankfully, you came up with a much more sensible name, so that's fine. Yes, <laughs> yes. So Platypus Rex played the first drummer for the Bowels, uh, Brian. We played his basement, uh, and it wasn't even billed as a show. It was, I think, it was just a party. And I think, like, if I remember correctly, I know Oblivion at least played a couple songs. Maybe the Bowles, uh, I'm sure all the Bowles are there. I can't remember if they played any songs or not, but we were kind of coerced yeah. into um, playing a couple songs because by this point we had probably written five or six songs. Um, and our, our thing back then, at least for me, was 
this is going to be totally cool playing, playing to our friends and playing basements. I, we, I had no, I had no delusions, you know, fireside weren't fireside bowl. Wasn't doing shows until about a year later. Um, a place like the Wrigley side, which we uh, eventually ended up playing a couple months later, that kind of seemed like another level that we, you know, we're not ready for that. Like that's, that's where the professional punk bands play. Like we didn't think, we didn't think we were, we were uh, suitable for that at any, uh, at any point um, in the beginning. Um, but certainly, certainly as things kind of started getting uh, bigger for us, we were still thinking like, oh, let's just take this show by show because I certainly didn't think of punk rock as, as, as a career. I was, I was brought up, um, I shouldn't say brought up. I've, I've been wanting to follow in my father's footsteps and becoming a Chicago firefighter. That was my goal. And I just happened to stumble upon, you know, through mutual friends, I met uh, Joe and Dan and everybody. And, uh, you know, I fell into the band on accident because my buddy who tried out for the band uh, kind of fucked up his audition and, and Daryl and Daryl and, uh, and Ken, and I think Bob were there too. And they're like, you know, you're here, man. We've heard you sing in the car. You should try and give this a shot. Uh, so this whole thing, the, the idea that I'm still singing in a band 30 years later is, is crazy. Cause that wasn't the plan at all. The plan was to just do something fun on the side. And then when the career actually comes to, uh, comes around, that's what I'm going to stick to. Uh, what, how, how do you compare the, the scenes from when you first started until now? Like, what's been the biggest changes for you, do you feel? Maybe I was blissfully ignorant back then. And, you know, and I'm, I'm no angel. I'm certainly not, I'm certainly not straight edge. I'm certainly not, you know, the remotest bit sober. But, you know, when we, when, when we were going to shows and playing shows in the early 90s, you were barely seeing people drink, let alone, you know, getting high and passing this or that around in the crowd. I feel like this, this day and age, I mean, with pot being legal in, in, um, in Illinois, at least, uh, it's, in, you know, vaping and all that shit. <laughs> this is going to turn into a crabby old man interview <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> These kids and their vape cigarettes. Uh, it, 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 it was, it seemed to me, seemed to be, to me, to be a little more clean cut back then. People were just kind of like, hey man, we're just going to, drink sodas and you know to quote dag nasty we were just you know we were just going to shows that we got we weren't uh we weren't going to do anything other than other than have fun and there's there's a little bit of element of of extra party in these days and then you know to each their own it's it, it it's fine but it's it's also weird when you're playing like I've, I've noticed this a couple times uh at 88 shows uh in chicago and other places where uh we don't always stop the show to like see somebody get carried out but every once in a while you're like oh this this guy, I think, I, I think this happened at New Cross where a few people started imbibing way too early. And by the time like the second band played, people were too fucked up to even stand up. And so you'd start seeing people kind of make a beeline to get some fresh air. <laughs> yeah, well done, Dave. Oh, yeah. Door, yeah. Hand, hands up. <laughs> <laughs> Not calling anybody out, Dave, but you know. <laughs> In addition to that, it's a lot more, it's weird to say this and then go into, it's almost more family friendly. But you do see a lot of, you do see a lot of people from from the original era bringing their kids to shows because their kids are old enough to appreciate it and get into it. And the last time we went out west, I can recall playing a show in somewhere somewhere maybe just north of L.A. where not only was a father and son there, father our age, son you know maybe a year or two older than than my son, they were getting lit at the bar before the show started. <laughs> if I pin together his family. Yeah, exactly. They're going to get kicked out at the same time. That's going to be great. Do you know what? That's the dream, right? As someone with, we've talked about this with uh, with Dave Reese from SNFU, but um, yeah. Dave and I both got 
younger ones Dave's a bit older than mine but it, you know you do you do want to keep that dream alive don't you you got to live there's a little bit of I want to live through, through uh-huh. them. um it's a dangerous it's a dangerous thing to, to think but if if you know if one or two get through if just a couple of kids can kind of get it um yeah I'm sure I'm sure we'll lose most of them because what as as I think Dan Yemen said to us what can you rebel against if punk rock is you know the thing to rebel against oh where, yeah where do they go but if we can get one or two kids into it, that's that's a good thing, I think. Um, yeah. I'm really, in, I'm, I'm kind of interested, as as you know, and as probably anyone that's listening to the podcast knows, I, I um I like my Chicago punk rock. What? <laughs> I'm really interested in this kind of era, Dennis, because we haven't talked. I've I've not really explored it with anyone before, because we spoke to Jeff Bazzardi from Naked Reagan, we've spoken to Daryl from the Bowl Weevils that you've mentioned. But I'm kind of interested in that, in that period in between, that sort of period where, where the, as you call them, professional bands, I'm guessing bands like Ray Gun, maybe like Articles of Faith, that sort of sort of scene were yeah. established. And then you, these younger kids come in, you guys, the Bull Evils, you've got, um, I guess, like Lawrence Arms, Smoking Popes. Yeah. We're all kind of about to, about to come through, maybe even Screeching Weasel sort of all doing their own sort of stuff. So I'm yeah. kind of interested in one, like how keen are you guys to kind of create something unique that is your own, that you can kind of call your own? And how much are you trying to also respect the kind of elders of the scene and how to hang on to coattails a bit? Is it a natural transition or are you guys just doing something very different and, you know, sort of forgetting anything that happened in the past, doing something just yourselves? Oh, no, we, we, we were consciously trying to hold up I'll, I'll call it the Chicago punk legacy. Those bands, Naked Ray Gun, Articles of Faith, Peg Boy, even though, even though Los Crudos were around at the same time we were, we, 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 we looked up to Los Crudos in the same light that we did, uh, you know, Ray Gun and Peg Boy and, and Articles of Faith. Uh, Martine from Los Crudos is the one that introduced me to Articles of Faith. I think I might've even seen the band like listed on like an old flyer or something like that at one of the you know record stores. But he, I was actually record shopping with Joe. I remember this. It was sometime like early part of 93, 88 had just started. I don't even know if we started playing shows yet, but we were, we were at least practicing and we went record shopping. We ran into, uh, we ran into Martine record shopping. And uh, as Joe was, uh, was wont to do back then, he, <laughs> Joe, Joe, Joe would tell everybody, Hey, uh, haven't seen you in a while. Just a heads up. I'm in a band now with this guy. And we might have, you know, we probably had a small handful of songs under our belt, no shows on the horizon, but we were, but Joe was really excited to tell, you know, friends of ours and certainly people that we looked up to that we were in a band and maybe kind of angle like, oh yeah, you know, when we get our shit together, let's play some shows together. Um, but I remember him, him walking up to Martina, this record store saying, yeah, Dennis and I have, have, have a band and we're, uh, we're really excited about it. And uh, I don't know how we, how we pivoted to Articles of Faith. Uh, but we did, and Martin. Not only did he talk to us about Articles of Faith, he said, "Hey, uh, give me a ride back to my house, uh, and I'll play you some records that you guys should probably be paying attention to." So we literally had a music lesson from Martin from Los Crudos, sitting sitting in. He, I remember him having a fairly small apartment. Uh, it might have even just been a studio apartment. Uh, sat down, and he's playing us uh, "My Father's Dreams." Like hear, hearing that song at his house and looking at Joe and we're like, this is, this is as fast, if not uh, faster than we thought we'd ever want to play. Like, was that a, a specific, was that a moment? Did, like, how, what oh, those, absolutely. Was that, what were the songs that you wrote before? How did they change then? What was that? What was that Articles of Faith realization? Like, cause that, I mean, that, that band, that song and um, so, that album is just. 
So bef- before before I before we heard uh, articles of faith, ADA pretty much formed because we wanted to sound like uh, I wanted to I wanted to sing as good as Daryl, which I still can't do. But I wanted to I wanted to be as melodic as Screeching Weasel. I wanted to be as tough as Naked Raygun. And then between Joe and Dan, and to some extent Dom, our, our first drummer, I think they wanted to play as fast as as No Effects. And No Effects back then was, you know, they were playing the same kind of tempo as Bad Religion. They weren't doing anything like remotely thrashy. You know, with the exception of Bhopal Stiffs, like I don't, I didn't know too many bands from Chicago that played like fast, you know, super fast punk. So sitting down and hearing Articles of Faith, my I remember my jaw just dropped, and I and I'm like. Joe, we, we've got some homework to do. And not only was Martin uh, nice enough to play the record, he said, I normally don't do this, but I could tell how excited you guys are. I will let you borrow this record. Please give it back to me as soon as possible. And the, you know, same, you know, typical stuff, like same condition that, that I, I handed to you. And we're like, of course, man, we're going to treat this thing like it's, like it's the Holy Grail. And, and it was, that record had, not to take anything away from Screeching Weasel or, or, or no effects, but um, right then and there, uh, articles Articles of Faith became just as important to me as a, as a fan of Chicago music as as Naked Reagan did, and we immediately went home, uh, told told the other guys about it, and I, I want to say we started practicing it. If if not that next practice, certainly certainly the the first couple practices after that, and. So when we when the idea for the Viva Chicago split with the Bogles came out, it was like, well, we know what song we're doing, <laughs> you know, no uh, no question there. And what other bands did Martin introduce you to that night? Oh, uh, Generation Waste, which was uh, Dan from Sludgeworths. Uh, I think I believe that was the first band that he sang for, and they were um, they were kind of a thrashy Seven Seconds. Like if you took Seven Seconds and DRI, that's kind of what that's kind of what they sound like. I don't think Dan was fifteen. Uh, when that band was was around, we probably heard some of the older um, Silver Abuse and um, oh Effigies. I don't know that I heard too many too much Effigies before uh, before hearing Mar- what Mar- Martin played. So it was a lot more sort of hardcore, um, yeah, Chicago stuff. Exactly, exactly. It was so weird hearing like I, I, you know. Don't get me wrong. I knew of, I knew of Life Sentence, and I, I should rewind a bit. I had known of Life Sentence and like this band Snoopy's Tapeworm. But they were almost doing like a straight up DRI crossover. So I wasn't necessarily considering that punk rock or hardcore. That was more like thrash for me, which was, you know, totally cool. But like I wasn't I didn't necessarily consider that, you know, in my mind, punk rock by 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 any stretch. But um, yeah, man, what a what, what a history lesson. And that that afternoon just was was eye opening. And, and I in my head, I was like, if we don't sound like no effects, like not to take away anything away from no effects because we obviously owe them a great, a great, great debt of gratitude. But uh, in my mind, I just wanted to rip off. I wanted to rip off articles, articles of faith. That was my. Well, I love that we can. There's probably not many bands that can pinpoint a particular moment as a kind of life, a life changing yeah. one. That's awesome. Were you like, were you, I mean, cause you mentioned like silver abuse and, and again, um, as someone that is interested in this kind of stuff like that, that kind of busted at Oz scene that, mm-hmm. was, that kind of happened. And then obviously that Ray going to merge from, were you around and, and sort of aware of, of that sort of stuff? Or was that a bit early for you? That was, that was early for me. I, when we, when, when 88, when, when I met the guys in 88 and we started hanging out, I realized I was, I was older by a couple of years from those guys, but I, I was the only one that went away to college. 
So I didn't start really going to shows. So my first Chicago punk show would have been Naked Ray Gun in like 1990 or 91. But, and, and I know Joe was going to shows in like 89. Dan might've even started going to shows in 88. I, I feel like Dan saw Screeching Weasel fairly early, which is funny because I think he, spoiler alert, he was a metalhead before he became a punk rocker. <laughs> big, big surprise with the, with the, with the shaved head of, of his. But uh, I, think, I think they were going to show, they were definitely going to shows at least a year or two earlier than I, I was. So Dan caught Bhopal Stiffs. I never got to see a Bhopal Stiff show. So it was, it was like Naked Reagan for me. And then almost immediately after that was Screeching Weasel right around um, My Brain Hurts. I think maybe the record release show for My Brain Hurts. But yeah, so I was, I was not, uh, I was either too young or away. No, I was definitely too young to go see the Busted Oz stuff because I don't think I'd even graduated. Is it A levels? Is that is that what your grade school yeah, is? Like high, yeah, high school for you guys, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I wasn't, I wasn't even done with A levels back then. So there's no way my parents were going to let me go to see a punk rock show back then. <laughs> so you mentioned let's let's go back then to your parents, and you mentioned your 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 dad very early yeah. on as <clears throat> and something that you were kind of looking to. You had a bit of a path laid out for you what well, let's go right back to the beginning then like what what's that kind of very first early musical memory have you got what was it a, a household where music was encouraged and uh, and shared it was it was definitely shared i don't and i know yeah, i take that back it was encouraged so my mom my mom was uh my mom is da- dad passed a, a number of years ago mom's still around mom was more of a show tunes lady so you know we were hearing Oklahoma and you know um my fair lady and all, all the all the all the show tunes my mom could sing uh, my dad was the uh my dad was the rocker uh the rocker and the and the, the the dynamic there so the Beatles were definitely the first band that I latched on to just because uh there was the ever-present it was it was the cassette days so it was the ever-present um white album on the it was a two cassette version of the white album that was always uh, whatever room in the house had had a, a working stereo. My dad would would either it would either be like the little boombox in the kitchen you'd see that you'd see it there, or if you wanted to listen to it on the hi-fi speakers in the in the front room you'd see it there. So it was it was it was the Beatles for me, and to to some extent my two younger brothers as well. And then my parents started. <laughs> I was just talking about this the other day. My parents. Uh, my parents would get lit at night and they'd be like, they'd be like, Dennis, come, come downstairs and sing for us. <laughs> and, and, and my dad would play like the Beatles and I would sing along to the Beatles. But uh, I shouldn't even pause. Like, I, like I'm embarrassed to say this because it's, <laughs> it's not embarrassing at all. My, uh, the earliest recordings that my parents had, they're long since gone, but the earliest recordings my parents had of the sound of my voice singing was John Denver. They'd have the John Denver's greatest hits, so I'd be singing uh, "Rocky Mountain Rocky High." Mountain and High yeah. <laughs> thank God I'm a thank God I'm a country boy was the big one. Uh, my mom brought this up over over the holiday too. She's like, she's like, you used to, you know, we used to give you a brush and you'd sing into this hairbrush and you'd sing "Thank God I'm a Country Boy." And I don't remember, but both my both my brothers uh, could sing in tune as well. Did you have any instruments in house? Uh, there was an acoustic guitar that. Uh, I used to blame on the fact that I was left-handed. And this is this is this is way before I knew who Blake Schwarzenbach or, or uh, Kurt Cobain were. And I'm like, I'm left-handed. I can't play this right-handed guitar. Forget it. I'm a, I'm going to stick to this triangle. Or give me the, or, give me the hairbrush. 
Yeah, exactly. Give me the tennis racket. I could air guitar to that. Yeah. So, so the earliest singing was so long to like, you know, to our, to our parents stuff. And then. Sorry, I've got to ask Dennis, are they, are they asking yeah. you just to come and perform just for their own amusement? There wasn't any yeah. other. And, right. Sorry. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. They would, yeah, they they would wake you up and just get like. Oh, no, no, no. We'd be, we'd, you know, we'd, ironically, we would be, my brother and I shared a room. My middle brother and I shared a room. We'd be listening to uh, the, the Lost Beatles tapes or something like that it was a radio program that we listened to. And we'd be right in the middle of listening to that. And I'd hear either my mom or my dad yell upstairs, come downstairs. We got John Denver, you know, on the stereo. So that I'd, we'd go from listening to the Beatles and I'd go downstairs and, and see John Lennon while they're, you know, knocking their, knocking their drinks back. It wasn't, it wasn't more than a year or two later that uh, our best friends down the street from us their neighbor was throwing out his record collection. I think maybe he, he upgraded, you know, from, from vinyl to, you know, cassette or something like that. I can't remember what it was. This is like early, just, yeah, probably early 80s, like 82, 83. Um, and he threw out his Kiss collection. So we went from the Beatles to Kiss. And um, that was the first time I, you know, I thought my dad was a, I thought my dad was like this rocker dude so, and that he appreciated all sorts of rock and roll. And I realized that 11 years old, he fucking hated Kiss. He's like, <laughs> like, what is this fucking garbage? Like, it's Kiss. And then my mom had friends that said, oh, that stands for Knights and Satan Service. You don't want to let your kids listen to that devil music. So it became a secret. Like, of course, I'm going to listen to this band. Yeah. If my parents tell me I'm not supposed to, I'm going to find whatever way I can to fucking listen to this. So so it was Kiss and the Beatles for a very, very long time. And then, you know, through Kiss was more hard rock. This is all just listening for fun. There was never, speaking for myself, I don't know that my, either of my brothers had, I don't think they had any sort of rock, rock star dreams either. I just, it was just fun to sing. We were just singing because it was fun to do. It was, it, was, it was fun to make our parents happy and make them laugh. It was, it was fun to piss our parents off by listening to music they couldn't stand. Then fast forward, so this is mid-80s, fast forward to like 80, the summer of 1987, I graduated grade school, and I think my middle brother convinced our parents, hey, we could either join a, join a street gang, which we never were going to do, but we could either join a street gang, or you could buy us all skateboards, because we, my brother had a friend at, uh, a friend in the neighborhood that was, that had just gotten into skateboarding. It's a comp- compelling argument. This is this is the coolest shit in the world. Get tell your parents that you know it's a hundred hundred bucks a hundred bucks a complete you know for a complete deck. So get on it. So we convinced our parents, and then uh, oh, I'm glad they didn't buy you knives. You know, there you go. Yeah, knives. yeah, exactly. Look, it's either a bag of weed or uh, or the skateboard. Uh, it soon became both. But, uh, but when when he was buying, in seriousness, when he was when he yeah. was into the skateboarding, was it was did you know about the music? attached to the skateboarding scene or was it not really a... I, um, I knew of I knew of the Sex Pistols I couldn't even tell you if I heard a note before basically the first the, getting our first skate deck getting that subscription to Thrasher Magazine and looking at all the names all the band names with the, with the uh, border, you know offensive names goofy names cool names like we were just like w- without knowing a note of, of uh, Seven Seconds you know, one of, one of my favorite bands ever represent. I just thought the name was cool. And, and then to find out like, oh, they're covering 99 Red Balloons. Oh, okay. Well, looks like I found my new favorite band. So it was, it was, it was directly through Thrasher that we, that, that we got into punk rock. And, uh, 
and it was just we're buying we're we're going to the local record store we're buying anything that looked remotely punk rock and it was a lot of trial and error you know there was I got in a TSOL at the wrong time. Let's put it that way. Uh, I I saw I saw TSOL as in Thrasher, and I heard they were this old LA punk band. And uh, you know, I was already really big into um, like the Dead Kennedy. So I'm like, oh shit, I got to check TSOL out. I'm like, this is this is ACDC. This is there's nothing punk rock about this at all. And then my my so but in addition to Seven Seconds, I would say the first big punk band for me besides Seven Seconds was. Uh, was the circle jerks. I didn't know what the name circle jerks meant. So I, not only did I get- Hey dad, look what I just bought. I went, well, it wasn't even so much the, the, the I bought uh, circle jerks six and wonderful at the same time, uh, both on cassette, brought those home, didn't have to like show my parents, but I was so into the circle jerks that within a couple of weeks, I went to the local shopping mall and uh, they were selling Circle Jerks, just the, the skanking guy with the, the with the logo. And I brought it home. You know, I'm like, it's a it's a freaking, you know, punk rock shirt. And I walk in not thinking anything. And my dad's like, what are you wearing? I'm like, oh, it's a shirt I just got at the mall. Take Circle Jerks, take that off. I'm like, what? why? He goes, do you know what a Circle Jerks is? And I said, yeah, it's the name of a punk band. He goes, Take that shirt off before you, you know, before you tell, before I tell your mom, that kind of thing. So I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm like he, he waits a full half a day to tell me what a circle jerk is. So I take it off. I put on whatever goofy ass shirt I, I, I had, you know, available. I remember like finishing dinner that night. And then like, as I'm cleaning up, helping my dad clean up the table, I'm like, are you going to tell me what a circle jerk is? He's like, yeah, well, I guess you're going to figure it out sooner or later. So then he told me and I was like, Ooh. <laughs> but then within a few hours i was like well it's punk rock to do crazy gross stuff so uh, it, was a, it was a dangerous time wasn't it between that and bad religion shirts and yeah and yeah well, bad, bad, bad religion didn't didn't come till uh till a little bit later uh and by that point i i knew i was i wasn't going to be dumb enough to wear a shirt with a cross <laughs> a cross crossed out uh was he was yeah. he a captain of it? I mean, you said he was a firefighter, so you know, and, yeah. and Chicago's famed for its kind of blue collar uh, approach to life. So he, he and he knew what a circle jerk was. So he obviously was, you know, a man of, a man of the people. Um, right. Was was he was he vaguely accepting of of this? Like, did you, do you you know it, it was it was an okay thing for you to be a punk rocker at this point, apart from the sort of dodgy dodgy shirts? No, um, I think he. He certainly bought into what a lot of parents did in the in the you know late eighties. There, where punk rock was, you know, for us kids, it was a form of you know a form of musical rebellion. We're rebelling against, you know. I never stopped listening to the to the Beatles. Don't get me wrong; I was still pro Beatles, but like, you know, I wasn't as excited to hear my dad's Kenny Loggins records anymore. I wasn't too wasn't too keen on you know. Uh, uh, well, the Rolling Stones, I never stopped listening to, but like, you know, Jefferson Starship and shit like that. Like my dad thought he'd be able to like, you know, go on, go on car rides and we'd be singing, you know, Jethro Tull songs together. Like, I, I think he quickly realized like that, that wasn't going to happen. And he, he, I think they kind of saw our getting into punk rock as like, well, it's only a matter of time before they're addicted to crack, you know, uh, they're, 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 they're down to, you know, a road to, to self-destruction and we certainly my, my brother my little brother rob and i we saw that as a challenge to be like okay not only are we going to prove you wrong 
but we're gonna we're going to uh, do it in a way that's going to confuse the hell out of you. So rather than like turn in delinquents and like drop out of school and sniff glue, I mean we certainly sniff glue because <laughs> you know why wouldn't you? But uh, no, my, my, mine was the Magna marker. I didn't get into glue that much. But uh, but no, we still stayed we still stayed actively engaged with 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 school. You know we were if if we weren't on the honor roll anymore, we were certainly like you know, certainly near, near, near the top of our classes. So they really had no reason to like, my dad really had no reason to like give me any grief just because he didn't like the music I listened to. And as a matter of fact, I used to remind him like, Hey, remember how much we thought Engelbert Humperdinck sucked and like Lawrence Welk was a, was garbage. Yeah. You rebelled against your parents by listening to the, to the, uh, you know, the rock and roll on the, you know, on the, on the radio. I'm like, I'm doing, we're doing the same thing except Liberty spikes and you know <clears throat> leather jackets with you know with spikes on them. It only really became a a problem problem when I kind of line I was kind of like lined up to take the entry level exam for the fire department. Mm-hmm. The, it coincided with 88's second tour, and I was away. They, Chicago has this lovely habit of saying, "We're gonna set, we're gonna have this test any day now. Don't make any plans because you never know what we're gonna tell you when this test is." And I got tired of waiting, and I, I believe it was the 88th first trip to Canada. I remember calling home and talking to my son's mom and she said, well, I hope you're having fun because it's going to be awkward as hell when you get home. And I'm like, why? And she's like, well, your old man told me uh, that you're, you know, you missed the Chicago fire department entrance exam. He's, he's not too happy with you. So I came home and he's like, I can't believe you're taking this punk rock shit. You're, you're going you're gonna to ruin your life with this punk rock garbage is basically the conversation that we had. Uh, and that was tough, but at the same time, I'm like, I, you know, I grew up wanting to do this, but I can't wait around for them. I, I'm, I still got to, I have an opportunity to play, uh, you know, get me out of Illinois, let alone out of the country. Like, you know, you know. How old were you then? I was 20, nine, uh, 19 going on 20. So must have been, must have been scary. You know, you, at least you had your whole life laid out, had you know, being a fire, firefighter and then. No, you know, yeah. punk rock comes along and it's like, can you make a living out of punk rock? Or can you be like nice and stable, you know, in a good job that people respect and such? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it had gotten to the point where um, I was, I was, I married really young because um, I became a dad really young. And uh, my, <laughs> my ex-wife started out very supportive and that, then that quickly changed. But uh, at the time she was supportive and she was like, listen, you guys are doing stuff that you want to do. People want to see you guys do it. So if your dad can't handle it, your dad can't handle it. Um, but it, yeah, you're right. It was scary because, uh, you know, to, to rewind a bit, it wasn't like, it wasn't like growing up. My dad said, I picked out your career for you. I just, I just worshiped my dad. I, I was the one that made the decision. He didn't at, at no point growing up did my dad say, well, you know what? Someone needs to carry on the family tradition. Cause I was, my dad was a firefighter. My dad's uncle was a firefighter. So there was, there was like, I would have been, I think, fourth generation firefighter had, had the legacy or whatever the hell you want to call it continue. Um, but I, 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 I wanted to do that all on my own. It was no, there was no pressure for my dad to do it. But it got to the point where, you know, the band went from this cool, this thing where I was just going to play to my friends in my friend's basements to, oh, we're 
we're we're playing bigger shows. The crowds for our shows are start are are starting to get bigger and bigger, and we're 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 we're, we're too big to play basements now. But you know, we're 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 playing. You know, we're starting to play venues and clubs, and um, you know, guarantees are getting you know uh, pushed at us. And it was all it, it was all at such an early age. Like I said, I just couldn't wait around for this fire department thing to happen because. I didn't know if it was going to be in a year or five years. And in the meantime, like I didn't want to just keep working some shitty office job. I wanted to actually go out and do something while I, while I could still do it. So it was, yeah, it was, it was a tough pill for him to swallow, but uh, he actually ended up seeing a show we played. Uh, my mom, my mom and my, fir- my, my mom and my first stepdad uh, saw our third show ever was opening up for the Voodoo Glow Skulls. And my mom didn't even stick around for our set because no, she stuck. She stuck around for a couple songs, but it was because it was the Voodoo Glow Skulls. There was a shitload of people in there, and you know, ventilation was was very poor, and everybody dancing and slamming or whatever. It was causing the floor to shake, and so my mom's like, "Fuck this, I'm out of here. Uh, have have fun." My dad waited another two, almost three years. He surprised me. We we were on tour. We we were, we played St. Petersburg, Florida, and a few days before we left for tour we were told the bill was going to change and this band called kid rock was going to play. And could he be added onto the bill? And we're like, yeah, all right, whatever. He's going to have to headline though, because you know, you've got all punk bands and then this, whoever this goofy ass white, white guy that thinks he can rap uh, is going to play afterwards. And uh, my dad showed up because his girlfriend was going through like the low that my dad has a, had a um, vacation house in, in this area of Florida, St. Petersburg. And they were just looking through like what movie they were going to see that night. And my dad's girlfriend sees 88 Fingers Louie is playing. We should probably go to see them. So uh, right before doors open, he showed up uh, and he's, and I just remember thinking like, what the, f-? I, I literally said, what the fuck are you doing here? Uh, and he goes, uh, language, how the fuck are you playing in Florida? I go, this band that you never thought was going to do anything actually goes on tour and makes money. Uh, he goes, well, it looks like I have to see a show now. So he saw us play, open up for Kid Rock, and uh, I was never more nervous in my entire life. Like I, and I know I swear a lot on stage, but I feel like I, I feel like I swore ten times more that night. Like I probably said, "Fuck you, we're eighty-eight fingers, Louie. Fuck you. This one's for my fucking dad. Fuck, 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 <laughs> fuck." Uh, and we, and I, you know, we played, and and I remember him. I didn't stick around for Kid Rock for obvious reasons. We we went out to dinner, and. I asked my dad, I said, what, you know, what'd you think? And he just kind of, you know, he was, he was a man of few words and just kind of grunt, grunted something like, yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> and uh, his girlfriend over the course of the night would lean in. She said, he's never going to tell you that he liked your band, but he was really, he was really impressed. And so he went from being embarrassed of me. And I know he was, he went from embarrassed that his oldest son wasn't a fireman to putting 88 fingers stickers on his fire on his fire helmet and like really? that's so cool putting posters in the locker at work and oh, he man. uh yeah he went he he never saw another show uh because like my mom i think he was a little freaked out about uh <laughs> a, a, about the crowds there but um until he passed away he he was uh he was as, as supportive as you'd want a parent to be that's brilliant of, of, of your stuff so yeah. As a father, it wasn't best for your child. Make, make sure they're secure and happy and, you know, on the right path to a good, successful life. And, you know, obviously 
I suppose being in a punk rock band, which is like the unknown, really, isn't it? And you don't know what's going to happen with, you know, right. life as a musician. So I can understand his concerns, but you know, the fact he's proud of you and you know your achievements, that means a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a hyperbole aside. It was it was life changing for me because not not you know not that I need my parents that I needed my parents' approval in my mid twenties, but it was really fucking nice to get it. Yeah, you don't you, know? you don't know you wanted it, but actually, right. it didn't it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt. Right. And, Oh, I love the I love the stick on the helmet. Um, that's a, that's a really nice touch. What? Um, so before we get into like life, you know, on the successful path that is Eighty Eight Fingers, Louis. What what was it between then getting those Kiss records and then getting into skateboarding and then Thrasher to you actually doing it yourself? Like you've obviously met Dan and Joe, and you've obviously met mm-hmm. all those guys. So you're young kids, and yeah. there's probably an idea that this is something that you could do because the music isn't particularly, you know, as as challenging as bands like kiss or or other stuff you've listened to you're now into seven seconds right it's faster easier kind of stuff um right so what's the decision to to obviously then start stuff yourselves and 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 what's that um what's that sort of experience like well we so so once once 88 established the name 88 they 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 very uh, smartly said platypus rex is a terrible fucking name <laughs> and but let's go from a terrible fucking name to ripping off a character on a cartoon so dom our first drummer suggested we call ourselves 88 fingers louis He's like that's the piano thief from the flintstones and we were all flintstones fans so we we immediately said yes to that um but we we, we kind of looked at the bowie wills model of like hey it'd be great if somebody wanted to put out our, our you know a chicago label wanted to put out our stuff and I know they were working with uh, Underdog Records at the time, and we were we were uh, part of that collective for a short time as well. Um, but if they don't want to put out our stuff, then we're just going to do it on our own. And we we saw we saw the model that that the Boyles were were utilizing, and we kind of did the same thing. We're like, okay, well, you know, it'd be great if Underdog would put out a record. Actually, we knew we wanted to put out the first record on our own because we had just scraped enough money to record we we had a you know some some money left over that we're like well, let's just do let's just do a, a, a seven inch on our own you know very you know very cheap uh you know black and white uh was it black? Yeah, black and white with the little blue on there yeah that's right um but yeah just super cheaply just kind of did our own record uh had a had a record assembly party, you know, where had our friends come over and we're all taking turns putting fucking records together, and that was kind of like our our our, our thing. Like we we just kind of followed their lead. Like okay, you're you're, you know, maybe 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 a band should have played more shows before they put out their first seven inch, but we we're like, well, we've got the songs, we've got the songs. They're tight enough to record. Let's record them, and it was kind of to our advantage because we could say, hey, not only are we playing our first shows, but we're we've got something to sell instead of just like, you know, just some hand-drawn t-shirt, you know, that somebody, you know, threw stick figures on as a, as a t-shirt. Like we actually have something legitimate to offer at these shows. So it was just a lot of just kind of like, just kind of doing our thing for the better part of 1993. And it wasn't, it was so, yeah, it was probably most of 1993. We had the first seven inch out. We were going to get ready to record. We had more, got uh, some more money. We, and we wanted to record, in Indiana, where Screeching Weasel and the Queers recorded at, at, at Sonic Iguana. Um, so we went there, recorded uh, seven songs. Four of them ended up on the Go Away 7-inch, but the 
But before that, we took those seven songs. You brought them back home with us. We went to an underdog uh, meeting and we said, hey, here's a here's some songs for you know considerations. But part of the collective was like everybody, everybody voted on like what records they wanted to put out, you know, in the in the schedule. And I can't remember. I think they said yes, but it wasn't going to be until. So if we recorded in like July or August of 93, they didn't think they were going to be able to put it out until um, until sometime in 1994. And we're like, we don't want to sit on these songs for, you know, five, six, seven months. So Joe said, uh, Joe said, Mike from NoFX just started a record label. I'm going to send him a, uh, I'm going to send him these songs. And I remember saying, this is a bad idea because I know how much you like NoFX. And I, you know, and I, 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 I've, I've always liked no effects. I just didn't love them to the point that Joe did. Like that was, if I had my Beatles, no effects were, was, was Joe's Beatle. Uh, and, he, and I said, I think this is a bad idea because number one, he's never heard of us. Number two, it still sounds like we're a brand new band just with a better recording budget. And number three, like what's to stop this guy from saying, who the fuck are you? This is terrible. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say not that Mike's capable of telling somebody they're a terrible band. He's, he's certainly capable of telling somebody they're a terrible band, but I just didn't want to get, I didn't want Joe's feelings to get hurt. Like, like, like what a, what a, what a blow to your ego for some guy that you really look up to telling you, Oh no, you're, you know, if you're not a terrible band, you're not like a, you know, you're not experienced enough, but he sends it, he sends it anyway. And I, to be honest with you, I, I kind of forgot that he sent it. Maybe I didn't even know he sent it. Maybe we were convinced he wasn't going to send it and he sent it anyway. <laughs> Anyway, uh, I remember getting a phone call from him probably a, less than a month after, uh, after this discussion about sending the tape out. And he called me and he said, uh, I've got to meet with you as soon as possible. And I said, is everything okay? He goes, everything's great. I don't want to tell you on the phone. And I said, all right. Uh, so being from Chicago, we met for pizza and uh, we sat down. And he's like, he's shaking, he's shaking. I'm like, what's, what's wrong, man? What's wrong? He's like, I sent the tape to Mike. He wants to do a record with us. And I said, you know, and I'm waiting for him to be like, huh, I'm just kidding. He hates it. And he was so excited. Uh, he hates when I tell the story, by the way. Uh, <laughs> he was so excited. He was actually starting to cry. Like he was oh. so, so excited. And he's like, he's like tearing up in the middle of this pizza place. And I said, holy shit. And at the time, the first Lagwagon record was out, the longest line was out, and maybe no, no Use for Names Daily Grind was out. So we were, no, 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 we were the third record on Fat Records. So we were, we we came out just before the Daily Grind came out. So it was, it was longest line, the first Lagwagon, and then and then us. Um, but he uh, he's like, yeah, he really wants he wants to do a record with us. So I go, well. Holy shit, that's crazy. Right around that time, uh, we went to an underdog meeting and the underdog guys were like, cool, well, guess what? We, we kind of decided um, <laughs> the record that we wanted to put out before you guys looks like it's not going to be ready in time. So let's go ahead and put your record out. And we said, uh, no, we, we got another offer. And when we told them, and I love the guy, I, I, I still, the guys behind underdog records know this. I've said this to them a million times. There was no hard feelings whatsoever, but we said, you know, a record label out of California offered to put the record out and somebody, somebody at the late at, at underdog record said, well, have fun living your California dream, I guess. Like, you know, <laughs> you know, 
kind of irritated that that we didn't immediately say yes uh, to, to doing the record with them. But then the record came out, and then I mean, it's it's it sounds cliche, but everything fucking blew up for us. I mean, it blew up. It blew up for you, and it kind of blew up for. I mean, the the whole the whole second wave just kind of took off, and I guess yeah. There was a little, maybe, I don't know, it, what do you reckon? Was it a, a little bit of luck that you maybe Absolutely stumbled, stumbled on a bit of sa- a sound that was about to kind of blow up? How aware how aware of you are you at this point of those bands and that network of scenes that was about to break, that was about to break through? All, all the bands that we now know and love, you know, it, on those labels. How aware are you of what's going on? Uh Again, this all ties back to the Bullwheels. Uh, shortly before we we uh, signed to Fat, they had already signed to Doctor Strange. We were already exposed to the Voodoo Glow Skulls and Face to Face and Rhythm Collision, you know. And, and then obviously before that, you know, the Bad Religions and stuff like that that we had that we were influenced by. Um, but that kind of music wasn't taken off in Chicago. Like there was, you know, Chicago was still very much Screech and Weasel, Naked Ray Gun. Uh, you know, Sludgeworth, uh, all these great bands. Calif- the California sound, for lack of a better word, hadn't really entered, um, certainly Chicago. I don't know if that it entered the Midwest, aside from, you know, aside from bands like, you know, bands that we would eventually play with in Wisconsin that were super influenced by like the, the cruise record stuff. You know, you're all in, you're all in Descendants and, and, and bands like that. So that, that sound itself, we were only looking toward the west coast we didn't see anything like that um in the midwest but it's yeah it was not long after uh fat put out the go away seven inch we we played our our first huge huge show not not that playing with the voodoo glow skulls wasn't huge in itself because it was but you know we played a 300 capacity place with with voodoo glow skulls we played a, a, a since demolished venue in chicago called the oak theater we played we were the opening band. It was us, the Smoking Popes, Face to Face, and No Effects all played. And that was, if it wasn't a thousand, it was like 900 people. And uh, I would say probably 90% of the people at that show didn't know who the hell we were until we played that show. And then from that, that led to like, you know, going on tour for the first time. Things started progressing uh, pretty rapidly for us after that first Fat Savage, but it wasn't until that first fat sampler came out, the fat music for fat people that had blink on it, which was on wanted our second seven inch. I think, I think the timeline between the fat sampler coming out and, and wanted coming out, I think there was like a, maybe a 30 to 60 day lead times. Uh, so people only, a lot of people just knew us from, from the blink song. Once wanted came out, then it was like, Oh, you know, not only are you going to go on tour, but you're going to go on tour out West and you're going to play with a bunch of shows, Voodoo Glow Skulls. Ironically, we got asked to play. We actually got asked to tour with Seven Seconds and we had to say no. We had to say no because Joe was in college at the time. He was going to local, a local college and he goes, my mom will kill me if I, if I, if I drop out of college to, to play these shows with Seven Seconds. So we actually had to tell, tell Seven Seconds. I drew the shortest straw. I actually had to tell the booking agent uh, thank you, but we can't do it. And she was like, are you fucking serious? You realize what you, she literally said, Storm, Stormy Shepherd, God bless her. No, Mar- Margie, Margie, God bless her said, do you know what you're saying no to? And I said, oh, I know what I'm saying no to. 
I do not want to say no, but we can't do this without our bass player, which is hilarious considering the, tra- the trajectory that motherfucker has gone on to. Through that, we, we met the guys in Rancid, which led to us playing a bunch of shows with Rancid. And that, that was about the time that, uh, I'm going to choose my words carefully here. I, lo- I, love, I, I love my brothers and the Bullywills to death. But this is about the time where we started, our trajectory was a little higher than the Bullywills was. And we went, from be- we went from being best friends to somewhat, there was somewhat of a rivalry. It was, it was friendly. It wasn't like contentious at all. But it was like there was a few, not so much sniping from their camp, but 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 from other people in the scene. Like we didn't put enough dues in to to you know to reach the level that we were at the time. And we said we fully, you're absolutely right, we didn't. But we're we're going to ride this wave of luck. Like why would why would we say no? Oh, sorry, sorry, Fat Mike. I don't. We can't put our record, you know, because we've only been a band for nine months. We should probably put our dues in before you agree to put out a record. Like. No, we're going to fucking say yes, because who knows if this shit's ever going to, you know, this opportunity is ever going to happen again. So you've obviously exploded, you know, you've massive exposure across the stateside and, and beyond. You know, I remember picking up those fat record compilations myself and yeah. picking up, oh, this, is, this is a game changer, really. I think it exposed a lot of great bands to a massive, massive audience. How mm-hmm. much of a legacy do you, you think that, you know, 88 Fingers have left on the punk rock scene? That's, a, that's an interesting question. I... I I think we're regarded. I, I feel like I feel like there's a lot of respect for the for our era of punk rock um, nowadays. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. My son, um, my son's not involved in music per se. He's kind of sort of co-managing a band of of his high school buddies that are 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 actually doing quite well for themselves. And this band is uh, they've kind of looked at like the '90s model of like if we could. If we could have as much fun as 88 Fingers and the Bowie Wolves and the Fighters had 30 years ago, if we could have just as much fun doing that shit now as you guys did then, then then that's only, you know, that's only a plus in, in, in their book from what they've said. Um, it's weird thinking in terms like that because I'm not ready to accept that legacy bands are bands in their 50s, but I'm like, <laughs> I'm almost 50, so I guess... <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe maybe, maybe, maybe. I'll, I'll say this, Dennis. Um, going going full circle back back to where we started with the show that Dave and I were at last when we saw you. Um, uh, and what shocked me the most was I didn't know what to expect. I came to see you because I love eighty eight and I want to see you guys because uh, I, I love you guys. But the love in that room for that for your band was genuinely eye opening. I don't think I expected yeah. there was so much emotion. Like people were just so happy to just let loose and just dance around to fast punk rock. Honestly, it was genuinely brilliant. So um, I don't know, I don't know if there's a legacy, but you made a lot of people happy. And obviously if, if, you know, if younger people can uh, like your, like your son's friends can kind of, if that comes across um, and if some people are still, you know, getting some, some joy out of that, then that that's a pretty good, I think that's a pretty decent legacy to, to have, right? Can I, can I say something about that show that I haven't said um I, I certainly haven't said like outside of the 88 group. Um, so that same weekend we played Manchester punk festival and as excited as I was to play that show, we were also super jet lagged because we basically flown in, dropped our shit off and then went right back, right to the fucking club. We played to a lot of people that night, but I think uh, I just remember, I remember being exhausted and I remember the crowd 
not being super, uh, super into it. And I'm not going to say I pouted, but I remember <laughs> thinking like that crowd looks as tired as I feel right now. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, like, let's just get through this fucking set. Like literally in my head. And I, and I hate saying this out loud, but I literally thought to myself, let me just get through this fucking set. And then, you know, let me hit the bar because, uh, I'm too exhausted to think of anything else. So I kind of, if I'm going to be honest, I think I kind of felt, felt like we maybe, uh, went through the motions a bit at that set. And the next day we knew, you know, we, we had obviously had, had booked the show at new cross. And before we even played that, before we even got to that venue, I just remember thinking like, okay, it'll be nice to just play a regular club show. No, no, like, no, no, no weird lighting, you know, stage lighting, no worrying about if we're taking it full advantage of the, you know, big stage or anything like that. Like in my head, I'm like, this is probably going to be a, a funner show for us. The moment the first band started playing and I saw just the, the bands to open up, I remember thinking like, oh, this, this is a, a very energetic crowd. This is going to be fun. And then we get up and I, I want to say it was about very early on in the set, maybe, maybe even after like the second or third song, I turned around um, to look at what song was next. I remember getting a drink of water, <laughs> water. And um, I turned to Dan, I go, holy fucking shit. This is like night and day. He's like, I know, I know. And we totally, it sounds cliche to say, but as fun as it was for you guys out there, I, we, we picked up on all that and it just was like, okay, well, you know what, this is, I would, I would gladly play a fucking month's worth of shows like this than to play, you know, another tired at, you know, I shouldn't say a tired ass festival because <laughs> the folks behind Manchester are, are, were great guys, but it was just, it was night and day as far as energy, as far as energy. It, was, it, so, was, it was a great show. It was a really yeah. good show. And that and venue, I think it's one of my favorite venues. I think that's a really, as, as London venues go, the new cross in as a lot of great shows and, yeah. yeah, it's always, you're always guaranteed to get a really good. Uh, the only only venue left, Dave. That's why. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was gonna say. I, I remember uh, we we stayed in the. They had the uh, the hotel uh, above the above the venue or next, I guess adjacent to the venue. And I remember after everybody left, we had uh, you know kind of sort of packed up our stuff and put it in a corner. And before we even went upstairs to uh, to settle in, the guy that was tending bar was this older guy. Um, I don't know if uh, he, he came across like somebody that, you know, not only had been working there for a long time, but had been like a music guy for a long time. And he was like, he, he, he was very complimentary. And I always get a kick out of seeing like, when I hear somebody from like the, the old days say, Oh shit, you guys still, you know, you guys sound just as, you know, you guys look like you're just having, having just as much fun as you did you know, at that point, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, you look like you're having just as much fun as you did back in the day. And I'm like, you know, it, it was really, really fun. And he's like, we'll come back anytime. And I remember being so excited. I'm like, when we come back to Europe, when we come back to the UK, I don't give a shit about anywhere else. Can we just play like a week's worth of shows at the Cross Inn? That's, that's all I care about. One day, one day, yeah. I hope. We, we haven't talked about the story so far or Exploder Makeup, which, um, are bands that, that uh, people should check out probably le lesser known bands but I mean mm -hmm. just br brilliant bands when you after after 88 two bands that you you did that were kind of um not similar but you know in the same sort of hardcore melodic hardcore vein um yeah. I was lucky enough to see Exploder Makeup 
um, that one time when I came over. I think that's supporting right. Articles of Faith yep. again to go back. And Jello Biafra. And Jello Biafra, that's right. Yeah. That yeah. was a great show. That was a great show. <laughs> um, what, I mean, but also, Dennis, we're friends on Facebook, and I don't think I know anyone who has got such a passion for such a wide variety uh, of music, which is brilliant. So, I mean, it's you, a sickness. It's a sickness. It's, for for it's, anyone that, that doesn't know, Dennis, you know, sort of shares daily just, you know, things he's been listening to, songs, and it is so broad, which is great. We all listen to, to broad stuff, but you, you've got a, a variety in your in your sort of repertoire that's beyond anything I've seen. What what was it? What is it and why? <laughs> and, don't, and don't just say because you 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 lack musical talent. Like, were you ever <laughs> tempted to, to do anything differently? Because you've obviously got interests way outside of just hardcore punk. What yeah. is it about hardcore punk that keeps drawing you back in? For a brief moment, uh, after Story So Far and before Exploding Makeup, for a brief moment in the very early 2000s, I tried putting together a country band because I was getting really into Uncle Tupelo and Whiskey Town and Grand Parsons. And, and you know, that was kind of my jam uh, at the time. Still, still is, but I was really, 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 really uh, into it then. Um, I realized that no matter how much I try to like, there's, there's, there's times that I want to run away from just being known as a punk rock guy. Like I, I, I was like in my head, I'm like, but there's more to me than just punk rock Dennis. I've, I've got other, you know, other values too. other, you know, the energy playing melodic hardcore is, is unlike anything else. It's, it's, it's the speed, it's the intensity. It's the, um, ironically, I write, I've, 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 I've written melodies for a variety of, of different types of music over the years, but nothing sounds more melodic to my ears than a good hardcore song, which is crazy because I can listen to the poppy shit in the world. You know, you talk about how much different musical taste I have. I really like the, the, the last, you know, the, the Taylor Swift re-recorded record. I think it's fucking remarkable. Um, there's so many hooks on that, but I couldn't play it. I couldn't do anything like that live. I'd be bored. I'd be bored shitless. Just being on stage, just like kind of holding my mic and, you know, brooding from side to side. Like I, I, I can't do that. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. Like I, I don't listen to a lot of melodic hardcore when I'm off stage. Um, and maybe that's worked to my advantage. I don't know. I feel like, I feel like the record, the, the record that 88 did in 2017, um, Thank You For Being A Friend, I feel like that's our most melodic record because all four of us, uh, certainly John, Dan, and I, over the years in between Back on the Streets and, and this record, like our musical influences is, have, have somewhat remained the same, but we've definitely gone off in different, different directions. You know, Dan wasn't exclusively a metal guy anymore. He wasn't exclusively listening to like heavier, heavier punk. He was getting into... I remember, I remember uh, when he was doing the um, pre-production for, for the record to get the, uh, to get the sounds right. He was putting on Green Day. He used to throw off Green Day as like, you know, bubblegum punk. And he was like, hey, I can't stand this bubblegum shit. Um, but here he is putting, putting a Green Day record on to get a good guitar sound. Or, you know, Jimmy Eat World, who I remember specifically the, the, the second time we went to Europe. I was listening to the, the, the uh, Jimmy World uh, Clarity uh, almost exclusively because I was just a broody fucking emo motherfucker on that tour. And he caught me listening to, you know, 
a super soft song on that record. He's like, man, you listen to some wimpy ass shit. Like I, I remember hearing him say stuff like that, you know, to a lot of people, he's, you know, he's, he's got a point, but to see him kind of come full circle and embrace like, you know, Hey, there's other types of music out there, man. You don't have to, you know, listen to music that, you know, for, for body piercing exclusively, there's other, other types of music out there. Um, yeah, it's just it's. I think all of our influences, our varied influences, have, have uh, combined have, have made for a much better, a much more melodic sound uh, sound these days. So, that's, yeah, that's, I think it's worked to our advantage. That's really cool. So obviously, you pulled a lot of influences from a lot of different places, and like you say, it yeah. shows in your, it shows in your sound. Um, who would you say as an artist can be a couple of artists? Who would you say has been like the biggest influence on, on you as an individual, um, mm-hmm. as a band? And also, who's your favorite artist, would you recommend, would you say? Oof. Okay, the biggest influence on the band vocally for me uh, has been and always will be Tony Sly. He, he was, the, the moment I heard No Use for a Name, I thought, this is a guy that likes the Beatles as much as I do. He's... Uh, matter of fact, we used to uh, fuck around doing Please Please Me when we first started doing shows together. Uh, I think we attempted it once at Soundcheck and it sounded god awful. But uh, but we both had a, a serious appreciation for the Bowieels. And I real, or sorry, the Beatles, the, the Beatle Bowieels, the Beatle Weevils. Um, I, I rip off so much. I've ripped off so much melody from from Tony Sly. Paid, paid homage years. to Dennis. Paid homage to. Paid homage to uh, Tony Sly. He's he's probably my number one influence as a singer, followed very closely by not the Beatles but the Bowieels. Uh, Daryl showed me what a frontman is supposed to do. Now I now I cannot jump as high as Daryl, nor will I ever attempt to jump as high as Daryl. Daryl takes intensity to an entirely different level. That if I try to do that, it would it would I would look ridiculous. Uh, Daryl's intensity. Daryl's the reason why I, I'm in 88 Fingers Louie. Daryl's the reason why I, 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 I joined a punk rock band. Uh, Tony's the reason why Tony's the reason why I sing as melodically as I do. Um, but as far as like my favorite artists go, um, I, I, I still have to say the Beatles. Well, we say it every time, Dave. That was lovely. I am... Um... There's a lot of funny stories, but I really loved this story that um, Dennis told us about his dad uh, and that little moment where he ended up with an 88 Fingers Louis sticker on his helmet. I think that's lovely. That was, that was brilliant. Oh, father-son moments, eh? Like, um, and what I also loved is that, uh, again, like, and it touched upon your conversation with like Dave Rees um, a while back about how like, the relationship they form with their, with their children, trying to get them in the old punk rock scene, and you know, just that trying that trying to get them on side before they kind of like hate everything that you stand for. Basically, <laughs> I think Dennis has done quite well, hasn't he? Um, that was great. I love love Dennis. Um, and uh, thank you guys for listening. And um, Dave, if they want to listen to more, they can. They can. We're on all the streaming sites, Spotify. You know Apple Cast, um, wherever you'll find us on Instagram, you'll find us on Twitter, you'll find us on Facebook. Uh, yeah, just check us out. You don't have to look far, we're shameless. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, enjoy. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Shut up, Dave. <laughs> Don't embarrass me in front of my friend. Um, well, thank you very much. We hope to see you next time. This is John and Dave signing out. <laughs> Bye-bye. Hi, everybody. This is Dennis from 88 Fingers Louie, and you've been listening to the Punk Rock Academy podcast.